Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, I'm glad to be with you this morning, and you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 39. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 39. That's the text that the Lord has given us today in his providence as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 39. I'd love for you to turn there so you can look at it yourselves and so you can follow along and understand what God means in his word. And so let's read it together, Luke chapter 23. And I want to start in verse 26, actually. So let's read 26 to 43. And we'll talk about today, 33 through 39. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do not fear God. Uh, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I've read all of this together, but our verses that we're focusing on this morning are verses 33 through 39. Those are the verses we'll be focusing on. And what we're seeing in those particular verses, in that section, verses 33 through 39, are the attitudes and reactions of while Jesus is on the cross. We're seeing the attitudes and the reactions towards the crucified Christ. Uh, simply put, we're seeing how people are reacting once Jesus is placed upon this cross as the crucified Messiah. And then we're also seeing Jesus's attitude towards those who are surrounding him. So we are seeing two things. One, the surrounding people, their reactions. 
their attitudes towards Christ and then Christ's attitude and action as he is up on the cross. And so I mentioned this last week, and if you weren't here, you should indeed go back and listen to it because it's really going to set you up for today's message and, and you can kind of fill in the pieces as you go back and listen. But as I mentioned, all of this needs to be taken together. Verses 26 through 43 needs to be taken as a unit, similar to the trial narratives that we just covered. There were various stages to it. Well, Luke gives us the narrative of the crucifixion of Christ in stages as well. All of these verses from 26 to 43 make up the crucifixion of Christ. If you remember, I told you last week we were seeing the crucifixion part one, the journey and those who join. And that, listen now, that's exactly what was being said. Look at verse 26. It says, as they led him away. That means from Pilate. Now look at verse 33 to where we come to today. And when they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him. So this first section is the journey, right? They led him away from Pilate to the place where he's crucified. That's the journey to the cross. And then Luke moves us through that narrative by moving us through people. Not geographical locations, not timestamps, but people. So last week, the journey to the cross and those who join Christ on that journey. Well, this week, can I tell you, it's just as clear what's being said. As we see this aspect here, we're seeing Christ being put up on the cross. So here he is actually crucified. And then we're seeing the mockery of those who surround him and the mercy of him as he communicates about those who surround him. Next week, we'll see part three, which is the criminal's conversion. And then part four, in two weeks, we'll see the final death, which we call darkness, death, and declarations, because that's what it is. There's darkness. The darkest time in history, Christ will actually die, and there will be people who surround him declaring various things about him. And so that's what we're seeing here. And this is the journey to the cross. This is all part of the crucifixion narrative. And so here today, as we look at Jesus on the cross, the reactions and the attitudes uh, and the attitudes of people around him, it's very clear what's going on here. And so we see Christ, we see those who surround him. I'm going to start in verse 33, and there's a little bit of overlap because we ended with that last week, and we'll end in 39, um, but there will be overlap because next week we'll cover 39 as well. But really, as we look at this section, here's what I want you to think about. This is, this is literal. This is actual one-time event in history, never to be repeated. This is actually happening. While at the same time, this is a cameo, really, of the world's reactions to Christ and his crucifixion. As I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And that's exactly what we see in this section here, that this is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly. The word of the cross, the crucified Messiah who dies for sins, is folly to those who do not believe. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't fathom a crucified Messiah. And it's folly to Gentiles who have no need to be saved in their own mind. And so 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, and this is certainly true of this section here. 
And so this is, for them, the, the Jews, proof that this is not the Messiah. Uh, they're justifying themselves here in this section. But really, the only thing it does is just is expose their false expectations of Christ. You get that? They're, they're justifying themselves. See, this can't be the Christ. He's dying. Well, at the same time, all it really does is exposes their false expectations of what the Messiah would, would be. And so Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. He did not come to free them from the oppression of Rome. He did not come to, to overthrow their earthly political enemies. He came to overthrow the enemy of sin, to show their sinful condition, to free them from sin and its consequences, to satisfy God's wrath by becoming an innocent sacrifice, to pay the penalty for sin for those who would repent and believe. That's why he came. That's why he came. And some of us today have false expectations of Christ. We think that he should do this in our lives or that he accomplishes that. But you must first and foremost and foundationally understand that Christ came to pay the penalty on your behalf for your sin. That's an innocent sacrifice taking the wrath of God on your behalf. That's God's mercy that someone would be able to take your punishment but he had to be innocent because he had to have no punishment to pay himself. And Christ, ta God takes this innocent sacrifice and punishes him for sin uh, as the penalty for sin for those who would repent and trust completely in him for salvation. And so this is this innocent sacrifice. But the cross and all of its truths, Christ's messiahship, his deity, his crucifixion, his atonement, the nature of salvation is folly for those who do not believe. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And that's exactly what we see here today. If you remember the Jews, right? They had been cheering Christ's name just a little bit ago while Jesus was entering Jerusalem and then their hearts turned, they have now this Messiah on the cross whom they will, will kill. And so Luke shows us this crucifixion, this mockery, and this mercy. And I'm gonna give us three points to take us through this section. The first is the crucifixion. The crucifixion, plain and simple, that's what we're seeing. He's giving us an account of the crucifixion. Now notice here, this is the pinnacle of human history. This is the, 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 the tale of our crucified Messiah being put up on the tree. We see one, the, the crucifixion, verse 33a. We'll see secondly, the mockery, verses 33b, 34 through 39. I'm gonna skip over the, the mercy part and end with that because... It kind of goes crucifixion, mockery, mercy, and more mockery. So we're going to put the mockery together, and then we're going to cover the mercy, and we'll start with the crucifixion. The crucifixion, verse 33a, the mockery, 33b, 34b through 39, and number three, the mercy, 34a. So let's start now with the crucifixion. Let's read it, verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the what? Skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now here we are. This is the crucifixion. 
This is not his death yet, but this is him putting, uh, this is Christ being put up on the cross. You want to know Luke's account of Christ being put up on the cross? That was it. Verse 33. And this is what we read. We read that when they came to this place, what place? What was this destination? When they left Pilate, they got the verdict that they wanted. What was the place in which they came to? Where was the place that they would crucify this Messiah? It's called the skull. The skull in Aramaic is called Golgotha. That's what's that's how you say skull in Aramaic. And in Latin, it would be termed Calvary. Calvary means skull in Latin. And so you hear that this place, the skull or Golgotha or Calvary, is where they took Christ to be crucified. The crucifixion here, when we see in verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, very simply put, Luke puts it here, there they what? Crucified him. There they crucified him. This is the crucifixion. Luke is meaning to tell us that at this point now, Jesus is indeed being crucified. Now that seems like a short little phrase to tell us about the crucifixion of Christ. And you're right if you notice that. The crucifixion here, let me tell you first of all, that it was, crucifixion was invented first by the Persians in about 700 BC. And the Romans used this form of torture and death to bring about as much agony as possible along with killing a criminal. They wanted to provide as much torture as they could along with killing someone. And so the Jews knew that this is the way that the Romans would execute their prisoners. And that's why they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And this makes clear the absolute hatred that the Jews had for Jesus. They didn't want Jesus just to die. They wanted him to be what? Crucified. They wanted the, the, uh, as much torture and as much agony as possible to go along with his his death. They wanted him to suffer the worst possible torture in the process. Now, details in all of the gospel accounts are remarkably short about this very aspect. You would think that they would be longer. And here we read again in verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Think about this for just a minute. No details on the nails being driven in. No details about Jesus being fixated to the crossbar. No details of flipping him over in the dirt. And why is this so short? Well, number one, there's two reasons. Number one, the readers would already know about crucifixion. Not much would have to be said. Many people who would read this would already know what crucifixion would entail. But plus, now this is the main point. Listen now. Why so short? Well, because the physical suffering wasn't what was unique about Christ's death. And you have to understand that. Many other people have been crucified in history. What was unique about Christ's death wasn't his physical suffering, but it was what he accomplished. It was who he was. He was an innocent sacrifice who was led to death by God himself and would be the object of God's wrath and be killed on behalf of sinners to take God's wrath 
for mankind. There had never, ever been, and there will never be another innocent person who ever lives. And so what the gospel writers are focusing us on is not the death itself. That's not the unique aspect of Christ's death, but they're focusing us on who Christ is as the innocent substitute, the son of God, and what he accomplishes through his death. That's the focus. That's the focus. That's what the writers are making a point to teach. So the emphasis, remember this, think about this. As we've been going through Luke's gospel, what has the emphasis been on? What has the emphasis been on? It's been on God's sovereign control through this whole thing. Haven't you noticed that? Haven't you noticed? It's been on his plan to save sinners. That's the focus. The focus has been on Christ's innocence. Listen now, listen. What's the focus been on? His innocence. The focus has been on man's depravity. The focus has been on this substitutionary atonement. Remember him even proclaiming that at the, at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, that God's people can avoid God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. And Christ would be this final substitute, this lamb. And so what is being emphasized is who Christ is and what he accomplishes. And the people would already know about crucifixion. That's why there's no details here. However, we can know some things about crucifixion. And many of you might know some of this, but we can know what's happening here as they crucified him. Crucifixion always began with beating. It always began with a beating. And we know that this happened to Christ because Pilate says that he would bring Christ out and have him what? scourged. That's being beaten. And how they would scourge the crucified culprit is they would lift his arms. They would tie his arms to a pole. They would stretch him out tight. Sometimes they would lift him high and allow his arms to be fully stretched. At other times, they would tie his hands to a pole and have him bent over. Whatever way they could they could flatten the back. They could stretch out the back as much as possible to expose the back of the criminal. And so his back would be stretched out. There would be no padding for the blows. And they would continue to blow him from the neck all the way down to the knee. From the neck to the knee. And there would be two Roman soldiers during this beating that would alternate to keep the hits fresh. And what they would do is they would rip this flesh, this muscle, with deep lacerations to the back. They would use what is called the cat of nine tails. And on this cat of nine tails, they would have pieces of bone, of metal, of rock. And they would tie it to the end of these leather strips. And they would whip the back of, of, the, uh, of the criminal. Many would die because of this beating. And so they would want to get this criminal as close to death as possible without actually killing him or as close as they could to being still able to carry his own cross to be crucified. And that's exactly what they did. But for Christ, there was more. Remember, they put this robe on him. Well, a robe like that would be made of wool. And so imagine the gashes in his back with a, with a wool coat being placed over it. They put a crown of what on his head? thorns and they would strike the crown so that the thorns would dig into his skull. During this process, 
He would be deprived of food. He would be deprived of water. He was already deprived of sleep. And after the beating, they would tie his arms to the crossbar. As we saw last week, Jesus was unable to carry this crossbar all the way to the cross himself. But they would tie his arms to the crossbar. And when they arrived at the scene to crucify him, they would offer him wine. They would offer him a wine that's mixed with a, a, a sedative. And uh, we see that in Matthew 27, 34. When they, when they finally arrived there, they would offer Jesus the wine that was mixed with what? Gall. And Jesus refused to have it. He wouldn't drink it. And so then the one who was being crucified would be thrown on his back. The cross would be moved under his shoulder blades. And five to seven inch long spikes would be driven through the wrists. And they would do that through the wrists rather than the hands in order to keep the full body weight up, to hold the full body weight. And then the feet, they would be nailed with one spike together. And the knees would be bent so that the, the criminal could push up and breathe so that this could last as long as possible. And so the wounds on the feet, you would press into those wounds as your knees are bent. You'd pull up on the wrists and you do so instinctively. You do so involuntarily because as you're slumped on the cross, it would be difficult to breathe. And so many would die from asphyxiation because it was hard for them to breathe. But oftentimes we see someone who's crucified really kind of flat up on the cross. It probably looked more of a little bit like a hunch because you're being held by your wrists, your knees are bent, and you have to push up on your feet, on those wounds through your feet in order to breathe. And you would begin to do this instinctively, involuntarily. And so there was no justice. And so to breathe, you'd push up. They'd put a criminal in this position. And if they needed to kill the criminal quickly because this would take so long, if the soldiers wanted him dead quickly, they would break his what? Legs. Why? Because then he can't, what? Push up. And so they had this all figured out perfectly. John 19 tells us this. They were about to break Christ's legs, but he was already dead. And so John 19, 31 through 32 tells us. So this is, this is the crucifixion. This is what would happen. The pain would be so bad. The pain would be so terrible that this is where we get the word excruciating from, right? Excruciating. We get this from excruciatus in the, in, the, uh, in the Latin, which literally means, ex means out of, and then cruciatus means the cross. And so coming out of the cross, and we get this word excruciating, and that's what would be true of this whole process. The pain would be excruciating. The, the spikes through the wrists would sever this radial motor median nerve and it would shoot throbbing pain through the upper arm and the body. The spikes in the feet would sever the perennial planter's nerve and the pushing up on, on the whole body weight, this person would not survive long and he would begin, his, his blood would begin to be so full of CO2 that he'd begin to be loopy because he couldn't, breathe enough, not enough respirations. Can you imagine the cramping, the loss of strength? And once he looked dead, the way that they would confirm that a person is dead is by piercing his chest 
with a what? With a spear. And the result that would come out of the chest would be blood and what? Water. Plural and pericardial fluid. And that would indicate that this, that this person has died. And we see that in John 19, 34. When they pierced him, what came out? Blood and water. And so many have the wrong conception about what this actually means and begin to allegorize it a little bit. But all this means is that's the way they would confirm the death. And remember, as I said, the gospel writers are stressing the very nature of Christ and what he's accomplished. And in order to point to a literal resurrection, the writers first have to show us with proof that Christ was actually what? Dead. And so the writers confirm to us that this Christ, this Messiah, actually died. He died. Christ really died. And of course, that has implications in his resurrection. So at this point, the journey is over. Those who joined have been described to us. Their destination is the place of the skull. And here, Christ is put up on the cross. And the rest of the time, what Luke tells us is really two aspects. What people are saying while he's on the cross and what he is saying while he's on the cross. And so the mockery of those who surround him and the mercy from the Savior. Let's move now then to the mockery. Verse 34b, 33b and 34b through 39. 33b. It says... And the criminals, one on his right side and one on his what? Left. Now you might say there's no mockery there. Well, there is mockery there and I'll tell you about it in a moment. 34b, and they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but, they, but the rulers scoffed at him saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so we see here after the crucifixion, the mockery. This is now Jesus completing, completed the journey up on the cross. And here's the response of those who are watching. Verse 33 B, it says, there they crucified him. And it says, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And you might say, this doesn't really look like mockery. This just looks like more information about the crucifixion. But this is part of the mockery. A king would have his most respected associates on his right hand and on his what? Left. And in mocking Jesus' so-called kingship, right? What the Jews were so angry about, his claim to be God's king, the king of the Jews. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this what? World. And he would be mocked by the Romans by putting criminals on his right and on his left, as if this is the class he belongs to. These are his most trusted advisors. These are his people. Here's the great king. Who's on his right and who's on his left? Criminals. 
That's his value. That's his kingship. As if, as if this, this so-called king belongs to a, a class of criminals. Like when they offer the wine, which we're going to see in a moment, it's another mockery to his claim to kingship. It's as if a cupbearer to the what? To the king is coming to provide the wine for the king. And so this is all mockery. This is all mockery. They've already begun this mockery. Remember this, when they divided up his garments, and we've seen it here, and they put a crown on his head, and they hail him as king, and they put up an inscription that we see here that we'll see in just a moment. And we read all of really what takes place in John 19. And this mockery is what was said would happen in Psalm 22. We read that earlier. In Isaiah 53, in Zechariah 12, this is all a fulfillment of what would happen to God's Christ when he came to earth and was rejected. And so in this section, listen, we're seeing the sin of blasphemy. They're satisfied. Listen now, the Jews are so satisfied. They're justifying themselves. This can't be the Christ. Of course, look at this. We got it right. They're justifying themselves. They're satisfied. There's sarcasm here. And all of this as they put the Son of God on the cross. And so we read what they say. So they have one criminal on his right, one on his left. That's part of the mockery. Jump down to 34B. And they cast lots to divide his garments. If you turn to John, and really I already, like I said, mentioned this earlier in Psalm 22 when I read our opening call to worship, but talks about uh, his garments being divided. But if you turn to John 19, 33, you can see really how they divided his garments. John gives us some details there. John 19, verse 23, John 19, 23. And he says here, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots uh, for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is to go back to Luke. This is how they divided him. Now, why is this important? Well, this is where we understand that Christ was crucified naked. Uh, I mean, he had a loincloth on, but this was part of the shame. They divided his garments. They didn't give him his clothes. They took his clothes away from him. And so we understand this aspect. And this is significant for us. It wasn't significant for them. It was just part of the shame, part of the mockery. Can you imagine the crucified Messiah who's bleeding, who's got lacerations all over his body, who can't make it up to, uh, to Golgotha, who's now on a cross and he's naked? And this points us back to Adam and Eve. Remember this. Once sin came into the world, nakedness was a source of what? Shame. And this represents Jesus taking upon himself the moral guilt and the moral shame before God. God in Genesis 3.21 covered his people with animal skin. And that was a foreshadow to when he would cover his people's sin through his lamb that would be slain. 
he would point to that even in the garden. He would point to Christ's, his lamb, covering his people and their guilt and their sin and their shame in the gospel. But here, Christ becomes sin. He becomes shame on our behalf. He is like a man. He has become a man so he can die as a man for men to save men. Christ wouldn't be covered here. He would be punished. He would be judged by God. He would be guilty of shame and sin, though he committed no sin. And God would pour out his wrath on this innocent substitute. And ironically, as God pours pours out his wrath on Christ, the death of Christ on our behalf would actually cover us with righteousness. He would kill this innocent son of his and through it cover his people with righteousness. He would give righteousness to people who trust in this Christ. And so this is part of the mockery, the criminal on his right, the criminal on his left, the naked Christ who doesn't have his garments. He's a picture of sin and shame. And verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his, his chosen one. And so the NASB tells us here that the people were standing looking upon him. They were just looking on him as this all played out. Flip to Matthew chapter 27. Flip to Matthew chapter 27. I want to show you the attitude of the people here. Matthew 27 verses 20 through 23. It says, now the chief priests and the elders, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The people had been persuaded by the leaders since the triumphal entry and look down to verses 39 through 40 in the same chapter, the same chapter. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They were hurling abuse, back to Luke, hurling abuse, hurling sarcasm, hurling threats. And this was the people's attitude towards, towards Christ. Verse 35, again, the people stood by watching. They were, they were looking upon him, wagging their heads. And what about the rulers? Well, you see it and you can already assume what's being done here. The rulers stood by, verse 35b, and scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They stand by scoffing and sneering. They're literally turning their nose up at Christ. They're claiming if he was truly the Messiah, if he was God's Christ, the coming one, the anointed one, God's son, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies to save his people, let him come down from here. And this was to justify themselves. See, he can't be the Christ. And still today, unbelievers, 
justify themselves because they have the false expectations of Christ. And God shows patience and mercy. But here's what's happening at this point. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a what? Tree. And that was surely true of Christ here. Christ took the curse of sin. He was guilty before God, though he committed no guilt, uh, sin. He would be condemned in our place. And so here we see that this people, the crowd is surrounding him. The rulers, look at the rulers, 35b. They're scoffing at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself. The source of their mockery is that he's not the Christ. He's not God's Christ. And they fail to see their misunderstanding and their mis-expectations of the Christ. Look at verse 36. Let's look at the soldiers, what they do. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. This is, this is part of the mockery. Listen, this is part of the mockery. They would come here, and we, we know from the other gospel accounts, listen now, that there was three times that Jesus was offered wine. Matthew 27, 34, the, the, it was mixed with a sedative to make him loopy and, and, and mock him even further. Matthew 27, a sponge in order to do the same thing. But this time here, this mockery is, I mean, this offer of wine is mockery. This is a mockery. This is an act of, of mocking Christ as if he was a royal king who the cupbearers would bring the wine to him and, uh, and mock him as if he, is the, if, if he is a king as he claimed to be. And the Jews were so upset that he would claim this. Verse 36, so the soldiers, look at this, also mocked him. How did they mock him? Verse 36, coming up and offering him sour what? Wine. This is how they mocked him. Oh, king, here's your cup, here's your wine. And so they are these, uh, they are also hurling insults. Now you have to understand, listen here, we're almost done. The soldiers, they were not religious at all. They had no understanding of the Jewish uh, um, claim to blasphemy for Christ, claiming to be the king of the Jews. They didn't care. This was just an op opportunity for them to yield their power and authority and point to the foolishness of this man. And so verse 38, then we see more mockery. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the what? It was customary for them to put an inscription over a criminal. And so that the, the people who would look upon this person being crucified would look at the inscription, the claim or, or, or what they were guilty of, and they would do everything they could to avoid what this person does, did so that they would avoid the judgment that this person is getting, namely crucifixion. And so instead of the crime here, they meant to mock Christ and they put over Christ the king of the Jews. And what what we know here is, is that's what the Jews wanted it to say, that that's what he claimed to be, the king of the Jews. But Pilate here is the culprit for putting this. John nineteen seventeen tells us that, that he puts this above his head. And all the gospel accounts put together, they tell us what was really written over Christ. It was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he did this in order to have revenge upon the Jews and to say, this is your king. 
instead of this is who claims to be your king or this is the reason for his death that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So the Jews got upset and they asked to have it changed. But Pilate says what? No. He says, I've written what I've written. And he leaves this above Jesus's head in order to mock the Jews. And uh, ironically, this is exactly true of Jesus, that he truly is the king of the what? Jews. He's the king of the universe. And so the last little bit of mockery, just look at it, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Then save yourself. And so one last abuse. This is from the, uh, the criminal, one of the criminals. And uh, actually, if you turn to Matthew 27, 44, turn there with me, Matthew 27, verse 44. What we see here is that not only one of the criminals railed at him, but actually both. And that's interesting, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Turn to Mark's account, Mark 15. Turn to Mark's account. Mark chapter 15, verse 32. It says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also, what? reviled him. And so we have both criminals reviling him, which I think is very significant because you know what that means? That this person who was also participating in reviling Christ would also soon be saved. And um, it further emphasizes Christ's mercy on a sinner who repents. That one who repented, he had been reviling Christ before he repents and is saved. And we're going to see his salvation next week. And so listen now, what we see in this section is the crucifixion. We see the mockery surrounding Jesus upon the cross. And last but not least, we see the mercy. And this is short, but it's significant. Luke chapter 23, go back there. And we see in verse 34a, it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now listen, listen closely as we end here. This is one of seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Just ignore all these people getting up. Everyone's not upset about the message. They're about to be baptized here. They did it real, real stealth-like. One of Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. This is one of Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. You could do a study on that, couldn't you? And you don't understand the extent of what's being said here. We see the extent of the wickedness. We see all of the extent of the, the hatred of Jesus. We've seen it for weeks and weeks. Christ is now up on the cross. Surrounding him being crucified is nothing but mockery and scoffing. I just took us through it. And Jesus is saying here, they don't understand the extent of their wickedness. Meaning, if they rightly understood that I was the eternal, righteous, holy, and perfect son of God who came to die for their sins, they wouldn't be doing this. But they don't understand. They're blind 
They're blind by their sin. And so this is a general prayer. Uh, We know that not all people who were surrounding Jesus would be saved. We know that not all people are forgiven. We know that no one is excused because of their ignorance. So when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do, Romans 1 tells us that nobody will be excused because of ignorance, because you know God exists and you know your guilt and your sin. And so they're not excused here because of their ignorance. Christ is not uh, forgiving all of these unrepentant people here. So what's taking place here? Well, Jesus is expressing a prayer that that they would repent, that they would be forgiven. He's praying for their salvation as they're hanging him on the cross. He's praying for their salvation. We know that Jesus will save some who are here because we see in Acts 7, uh, Acts 6, that many even priests in Jerusalem became obedient to the faith, right? We know that here in just a minute, he'll save a criminal and he'll save the centurion, right? Two of the three people who are saved at the cross. Ephesians 1 tells us that his elect will indeed be saved. And so he will secure the salvation of his elect. And that's who he's praying for here. He's praying with all of his heart as they're killing him and as they're mocking him, that people would repent of their sin, trust in who he really is and be saved. And so this is the crucified Christ. This is the Messiah. We see him being put up on the cross. We see the mockery of those who surround him. And we see the mercy of him praying that they would repent and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning. Your word is clear to us. Your word is clear And we desire to come under its authority. We see here the the pinnacle of history. The Savior being killed at the hands of evil men. The mockery that surrounds. And yet the real heart and the mercy of the Savior. Lord, we pray that we would not fall into line with the world and their reaction to Christ. As I mentioned earlier, I know that this is a a bit of a cameo of the world's reaction to Christ. It's folly. It's mockery. Who would believe in a crucified Messiah who dies for sin, of God coming to earth, of a true king and whose kingdom is not of this world? That's folly to those who don't believe. Help us to not be part of that group. Help us to not be part of the group that looks at Christ and says that's foolishness and mocks him because it seems like foolishness. And even we, like the Jews, can view Christ as a a stumbling block. We can't fathom God coming to earth and dying for sin on our behalf. And yet this is exactly what we're seeing. Help us, Lord. Help us to be the very few, the foolish ones of this world who trust in this message, who trust in the Savior to be saved. 
We love you, Lord. We want to be the few who would be saved at Calvary, not the many who would reject you at Calvary. Thank you for this testimony to your death, that we would understand it, that we would glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen.